Hi, I'm Shelley Wood, the Managing Editor for HeartWire, and my guests here tonight are Dr. Renu Vermani and Dr. Sunil Rao. And I always love to have an interventionalist in the room with Dr. Renu Vermani. It always uh, makes for interesting conversations, so much excitement about devices. Dr. Vermani is often the um, voice of reason in some of these situations. So we thought we'd talk about a couple of the large studies that have come out recently and um, perhaps ask Dr. Vermani to give her predictions for what we might be thinking about these studies perhaps five years down the road. Let's start with uh, Basket Prove. Now this was a study that built on Basket Late from several years ago where there were some concerns raised about uh, safety of drug-eluting stents in larger vessels. Uh, Dr. Rao, can you maybe uh, walk us through why that was important? Sure. I mean, this is, remember, this is a few years ago when we had been hitting the peak of irrational exuberance for drug-eluting stents. I think it's about the same time the real estate bubble happened, actually. <laughs> and uh, like uh, both of them, they, they both popped. And one of the reasons was the basket late study that suggested that the patients who received the drug-eluting stents may have had actually a worse outcome long-term. And it was right. a really sobering thought mm -hmm. and made us all pay attention to what Dr. Vermani had been saying for a long time, which is, let's temper our enthusiasm for some of these new devices until we have enough patients to have a safety signal. Right. So there has been a lot of consternation about the use of drug-eluting stents, and Basket Prove is a very important study because it shows that in vessels who, that are three millimeters uh, in diameter or greater, um, the, the drug-eluting stent is actually safe. And I think that's a very important finding because what's interesting about the interventional cardiology world when it comes to stent choice is that we're actually making decisions based on safety rather than efficacy. Remember, right. the primary clinical effect of drug-eluting stents is to reduce restenosis and theoretically repeat procedures. And yet we seem to be deciding which patients should get them based on whether or not they can adhere to dual antiplatelet therapy, which yeah. is really a safety issue. That's right. And the issue too was that you thought these vessels were big enough, why not just use a bare metal stent? That, that was the theory, That's exactly right. right. That's so exactly right. There was a study by <coughs> ISAR four, I think, or one of the ISAR studies in which they showed very nicely that if you compare drug-eluting stents with the best bare metal stent, and obviously in this basket proof, we don't know what was the bare metal stent used. It's a generic name used for all bare metal stents. I mean, they're good bare metal stents and they're bad. So does basket prove allay your concerns in that environment? It allays my concern that for at least two years, as long as the patient is on dual antiplatelet therapy, that it is uh, safe in those patients. What concerns me is that they also showed target lesion revascularization was much higher in bare metal stents, which is against what ISAR had shown. Yeah. So my concern is you are bad-mouthing now bare metal stents, but why? Is it or because, which ones, I suppose. Exactly. For me, it is which ones, which were the bad ones, did you use a thick strut, and that's the reason why they are poor design. And there are all kinds, in Europe especially, there are so many stents available. It's not like where we here in the United States, they're fairly tightly controlled. Okay, so I'm not finished writing about drug-eluting stents just yet. Oh, I don't think you can write them off as being 100% safe. It's more to do with having good dual antiplatelet therapy, I think. If you have good antiplatelet therapy on board, now the question is, are patients benefiting from this dual antiplatelet therapy, whether they have a drug-looting right. stent or not? I think they're benefiting on the whole. So, I mean, that is also to be said because you Dr. Rao's trying to get a word in here edgewise. Well, no, I agree with you in principle, although I, th I think it's even more complicated than that. I mean, 
You know, there are a couple of interesting things from this basket proof study. Remember, they compared the first generation Everolimus eluding stent yes. with the you know, really the, the more modern Everolimus eluding stent. There didn't seem to no, be any differences. Yeah, that's right. And, and it, which has been a, a real issue, or at least a topic of discussion in the interventional world that makes you wonder. Hmm. The other issue about the dual antiplatelet therapy it's incredibly important. Yeah. However, it's interesting because there have been several analyses now that have looked at six months and beyond, mm -hmm. and you start seeing very similar rates between bare metal stents and drug eluting stents when patients come off of dual antiplatelet therapy. Right. So antiplatelet therapy, I think, is part of the answer, but I think that these events are so rare that we really need to rely on yes. studies from Dr. Vermani to figure out what are other issues that are going on that right. we need to improve upon. Certainly none of us want our patients to end up in Dr. Vermani's hands. No, they don't. But it, it does yeah. provide important insights. Well, here's another device I want to speak about, and that is at the recent AHA meeting, we heard results of Closure 1, which was the uh, <coughs> first randomized trial of PFO closure for stroke or TIA to actually meet its uh, enrollment and uh, produce results. And in this trial, surprising some, but not all, uh, there was absolutely no, no difference. Best medical therapy and PFO closure had exactly the same outcomes at two years. Mm -hmm. um, at, at Duke, are you, uh, were you doing PFO closure? Really, we were really, but based really on the FDA guidance document. Okay, I mean, so parts FDA, of stu in, in, within studies. Right, exactly. And you know, the FDA will allow you to have an exemption if the patient has had a recurrent neurological event while on therapy. And right. that's really the important yes. wording. So um, will you do fewer? I mean, will the bar be set a bit higher for actually implanting these at this point? I certainly hope so. You know, I think we all uh, lament the reporting of negative results. We get disappointed by them, but I think they're horribly important to report. Sure. Here is a strategy that, you know, for inter yeah. some interventional cardiologists who have been skeptics have really been pushed by some in the neurological community, some of our own colleagues, to try and do this procedure sure, to improve believers. patient outcomes. And they're real believers. But Dr. Vermani has had concerns, I think, I, that we were discussing just earlier. PFO occurs 30% of the exactly. population, yep. adult population and it decreases as age advances. So you so weren't surprised by For me, results. I'm not at all surprised. I think you put a device when they, there was no device there, and you're closing something which normally remains closed anyway, mm -hmm. so I don't see the point in putting a you know, PFO closure device. Now, tomorrow, if somebody has a TIA, repeat TIA, as you said, as the indications are, then it's a different story and it is coming from the same site. The problem really is half the time you don't know where it's coming from. Right. Do so, you have concerns about those devices in the heart long term? I mean, you're usually the first to uh, point us about, okay. There's no need to have a device in the atrium, for example, right and left atrium. And so you have this bulky wire, especially if you look at the Amplatzer, it's a fairly, uh, wire heavy But there were device. no safety problems that were not periprocedural in this trial. I think the real issue here is not really with the device as much as it is with the procedural process itself. Yes. I mean, we have mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of experience with ASDs, for example. The devices are generally safe. Yes. But the, I think the, you're, you're bringing up a very good point, which is why subject a patient to an invasive yes. procedure when they don't need it? Sure. Now, the thing we have to be a little bit careful of is indicting that procedure as a whole. As Dr. Vermani pointed out, there may be very specific and Indeed. rare clinical situations where you may need it. And there are at least three trials that I understand are planning to continue um, to completion. So there, I guess this isn't a closed book. It's a complicated yeah. no, but issue, isn't it? I think they're complicated issues, but I'm glad they're doing a trial. Yeah. And I think just empirically using is not a good idea. Sure. And I think this at least puts to rest that it doesn't help. Right. At, there but you raised a, a good point that 
but early uh, untowards effects in the first 30 days were higher mm -hmm. in the yeah. devices compared to which you would expect. Yeah. So and what you allude to, I think, is that there wasn't a lot of equipoise over this. This was pretty polarized. Some people absolutely believed in it and others absolutely did not. So it's nice to have some concrete results. It is, and where you find dogma is where there's little evidence. Yeah. So. Okay, so maybe it's a bit of uh, news that we might agree a bit more on. Well, we've agreed on this, I suppose. But, uh, of course, the big interventional news uh, in recent months has been tra uh, transcatheter valves, TAVI. So let's talk a bit about those. Are you using these valves? Um, are you, were you part of the partner trial? We weren't, but we are going to be part of the core valve trial. Interesting. Okay. And, um, you know, obviously the, the quality of life data were presented here by David Cohen, just yeah. like in the overall trial. Very impressive. Number needed to treat of four. Number needed to treat of three if you just yeah. looked at, right. uh, yeah, so. yeah. Exactly. So I think they're very impressive results. I think what's interesting about this is how quickly it's uh, spread in Europe. Yes. Yeah. You know, in you know, seven thousand patients in Germany, I think is the right number, or somewhere. Oh, it's along driving the American interventionalists crazy. crazy. What's interesting about this? What's interesting about this is that we always indict ourselves as U.S. physicians as being driven by financial incentives. The same thing occurs around the world. Yeah, sure. There are higher reimbursement rates for TAVI than there are for surgical yeah. valves. Okay, yeah. well, we could get distracted with the economical yeah, stuff right. here, but you've touched on the quality of life. Let's talk about the actual sort of pathology of what's going on here. It seems these are actually solving a problem and doing it quite rapidly. Is that your That's my view, that overall I think we'll improve them even further. You know, we have complications such as AR occurs very commonly. Left bundle branch block has been reported in these patients. And eventually there are some, you know, also in the first 30 days, there are very high number of side effects in the right. sense of uh, stroke uh, occurrence. And there is also some dissections and some vascular complications, vascular are very complications high, yeah. is yeah. very high, as high as 35%, which I think is fairly yeah. high. And but they're going to be able to improve on that technology, presumably yeah. to help with some of that, a lot of that. Absolutely, I, yeah, I think that's I, right. I mean, there are more positive things than there are negative. Even I will say, that's which something. you've uh, not heard me say too many times. <laughs> you heard it here. Because I think yeah. the valve, I want quality of life if I'm that age and I have aortic stenosis and I have all kinds of other reasons I can't have right. surgery. Therefore, I think I want quality of life. Yeah. And I think that was wonderful what David Cohen mm -hmm. presented, the quality of life was wonderful. Yeah. And that's what majority of the patients want. Well, here's a question that I think people would love to know the answer to. Have you seen at explant or at autopsy the uh, two different valves? Because everyone wants I to know how they compare. I have looked at both of them at right. autopsy. and. We, we have more of one than the other because they, it's, it has been in longer, so therefore you have more with the, with the Edwards valve as compared to the core valve. But overall, I will say that from my point of view, the thing that concerns me the most is one of the things that concerns, will the longevity of the valve be good? Right. Now, right now it doesn't matter because, you know, you're putting them in 80-year-olds and therefore longevity, as long as you have four or five years, and I've seen some for four years out, and they look pretty good, yeah. and the valve looks pretty good, so but it's very encouraging. In patients, but you start then... using them in 70-year-olds, we don't know that they're going to, but on the other hand, I will also say, we'll never learn if we don't go younger. Yeah. So it's a catch-22, but I think we need to look at the 80-year-olds who are getting 
and who are living longer than four or five years. Right. I think those are the patients we need to follow. We need to make sure that they don't have untowards effects. And you want to get a hold of their valves when it's finally their I time. would certainly love to get hold of them. Okay. Valves. Dr. Rao, can you tell us a little bit about the core valve trial? Um, when is it getting off the ground? When might we see some results and those types of things? Well, it's getting off the ground right now, actually. Yeah. The, okay. the centers are getting up to speed, and I think everyone's really excited about this technology yeah. because it's really the first major advance that we've seen uh, in this particular area where the morbidity rates are very, very high and the mortality yeah. rates are very high. So everyone's excited about this. It's actually wonderful to see two devices in this field so yeah. early. Yeah, well, that's, I think where that's a so much excitement thing. over the idea yeah. of having choice and that exactly. the market. But, you know, one of the nice has. things they're doing with the core valve is they are going to ask for autopsy mm -hmm. in case. And that's something mm -hmm. which has not happened in the past because yeah. they want to learn. And therefore, I think that's a very I mean, we may not get too many, and I hope we don't in a way, because I want patients to have good life at the same time. Yeah. So, but still, I think observing these over a long time and looking them, that's how the surgical valves improved. Right. It was, they came to, you know, autopsy or surgically right. removed or replaced. Those must be looked at, and right. I think we learn a lot more. And it's very exciting, I think. This is a well, technology the, which is very exciting. It is. I'm glad to have something exciting to write about. I'm sure right. you guys, uh, you'll both be fielding, uh, fielding calls from me, uh, interview requests about these devices in the years to come. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.